Welcome to the Teaching with Madly Learning podcast replay, fitting it all together to make teaching and learning in the junior grades more accessible, practical, and fun for both teachers and their students. Here's your host, teacher by day, mom of three, and curriculum creator of all the things from madlylearning.com, Patty Firth. Hands up, anybody else hate marking? Yeah, yeah, me too. I think marking is one of those things that as teachers, we struggle. It is the bane of our existence. It is something that is so time consuming that we often feel that our only option in order to get it all done is to take it home. Except when we take our marking home, we either ignore it as it's sitting in our teacher bag in our living room or laundry room or wherever you happen to store it. Or alternatively, we forget our friends and our family and we spend all of our time, unpaid time, marking. The reality is, is that when we strategically decide what it is we're going to spend our time marking and we set up the conditions that we need to ensure that marking can be done in a more manageable way, it means that we don't have to worry quite as much about taking as much marking home because we can be more efficient with our time during our paid hours to get the marking that we need to get done, done. So today I'm gonna talk to you about six different strategies that I use to reduce the amount of marking that I end up taking home so that I can actually spend my time at home with my friends and my family. Hi, my name is Patty and I'm a teacher here in Ontario, Canada. And every week we have a new episode of Teaching with Madly Learning where we talk about all things teaching and learning in the junior grades. It's our hope that with these episodes, we are able to help and engage and energize you to make teaching and learning more fun and enjoyable for you and your students. So what are those six ways that you can maybe reduce how much marking you are taking home? Because the reality is you earn your time off. You're not paid to work at home. So let's try to reduce what it is you're doing at home. Number one, one of the simplest and easiest ways that I have found to reduce the amount of marking that I have at home is to reduce the number of pencil and paper tasks the students are completing in each and every day. I remember the triangulation of data that one third of my work or my marking and my assessment should be observations. One third of my marking should be conversations that I'm having with my students. And the last third should be products or pencil and paper tasks that my students are engaging in. That is what should make up the bulk of my marking. A lot of my marking, the observations and the conversational components of my assessment happen in the moment. I'm not having conversations with my students at home and I'm not observing what they're doing when they're not at school. So therefore, two thirds of all of the assessment in my mark book should be based on observations and conversations. Well, where are we getting that from? We're getting that from our guided instruction, our ability to observe our students working and watching what it is they're doing and the conversations that we're having with them moment to moment throughout the day. The more I'm engaging and conversing with my students and observing what they're doing and recording those observations in the moment or simply making a mental note of them and writing them down later, the more I am keeping what it is they're doing on assessment and I'm keeping it on the observational conversational side and I'm not always requiring a product out of them for everything I'm doing. The idea that if you have eight periods a day or six periods a day, if you have a different product every single period of every single day of the week, well, if you have six periods, five days a week, you don't have 30 pieces of paper per student that you are marking 
every single day. Add on top of that the homework that you're required to mark if you're someone that's assigning homework and you, of course, are going to feel completely overwhelmed with how much marking you have to do because the tasks that you're assigning are marking and assessment heavy and there's stuff that you need to do without students in your room because you're not teaching. So if all of the things that you're giving your students are things that cannot be marked in the moment, then of course you're going to be drowning in papers because you're giving them a lot of stuff. And when you give them that stuff, you should be marking them or at least checking it. So the first strategy is to reduce the amount of pencil and paper tasks that you're giving students to do so that you're not marking them. If every single lesson you have has a photocopied piece of paper that's going to require you to mark it because students have put an answer or an idea down, then you have automatically increased how much marking you have to do. So by cutting back on the pencil and paper tasks, increasing things like group work, guided instruction, practice activities where they may be doing some things like playing a game or using hands-on manipulatives, or maybe they have a pencil and paper task, but it's more of a practice-based task that you don't have to mark it because they can self-check it. That's going to cut down on the amount of marking you're doing. Allowing students to have differentiate between what is practice work and what is work that will be assessed. That is going to help reduce some of that. One of the features that we're adding into our Ignited Math product is that our centers become practice work, which means the teachers won't be assessing students' work within a center. That's simply just going to be checked for completion. But the component that is going to be assessed is a once-a-week math journal. And in that math journal, students will be expected to reflect on the things that they've learned in practice, provide an example. And it's almost like an open-ended exit card for the end of the week, letting students explore and explain what it is they've done and practice what they understand, what they're learning, what they know. And they can kind of put that on their math journal. And then that is what's marked by the teacher, which means that all of that work that they're doing is practice, but that's practice so they can complete their math journal. It's like studying so that you can write a test. The math centers, the guided math, the math warm-ups, all of those components through the week, the activities you're doing through your lesson, that's not getting marked. It might be getting checked for completion and accountability, but it's not getting marked. What is getting marked is the journal at the end. So it's like all your week you're studying these concepts and then you have something to mark at the end. And because it's a student reflection journal, they can be self-assessing and you can be marking. But if you're reducing all of this other stuff that you're not marking, you're just checking, you're going through and saying, Did, is it done or is it not done? That's going to reduce some of that. Students can be held accountable for that as well. They can decide whether or not something is done or not done. They can be held accountable because they know that their math journal, which is like the exit ticket out of the door on the Friday, is going to be better and done based on if they have completed their work throughout the week. It also means that while students are working on these practice activities in math through their guided math, through their math centers, and through their math warm-ups, you have so many opportunities to observe students working and learning. You can circulate around the classroom and observe your students doing their daily math warm-ups. Those math warm-ups can be self-checked so that students can check the answers to those math warm-ups. 
without you necessarily needing to market for them. They can market themselves. You can give them that opportunity to go self-check their answers because they need to be able to do it. If they just come up with an answer, well, that's great. They can just write the correct answer, but that answer is not going to help them when they have to try to prove something that they've learned at the end of the week. So we've systematically designed our Ignited Math program to make sure that we are not overloading the teacher with assessment things to mark, yet there is tons of opportunities for assessment to be gathered throughout the week without there being a constant overload of marking. So there is some pencil and paper tasks. There are some activities that they're doing, but they're strategically put in place for teachers to observe, to prompt conversations, and to allow students to practice and the evaluation is happening every single week. So teachers are on top of what's happening and what's going on, but not overloaded and bombarded thinking that they need to absolutely mark every single piece of paper that their student touches. So by reducing the amount of paper that you are collecting from your students to assess and mark, that's going to reduce how much marking you have because you're collecting less. Delineating between what is practice work and what is assessment is also going to help because you're automatically going to give yourself permission to not have to mark every single thing your student touches. You can mark strategically instead of marking everything. Now, another way to reduce your overall workload when it comes to assessment is to increase your observation and conversational assessment. This includes the opportunities you have to watch your students working through guided instruction, and it also means that you're looking at your students and you're helping them and you're watching what's going on. You're having a conversation. You're checking in with students to make sure that you can observe what it is they're doing. You can talk to them. They can talk to you. You can have these conversations. There's so much value that is had through these assessment conversations and assessment observations. You can quickly grab some formative assessment to decide which students are on the pathway to success, which students are still struggling, which students you need to perhaps spend more time with, pull them into an impromptu guided math group so that you can reteach a concept that maybe they're struggling with and not getting. All of those opportunities are there. Now, some of the strategies that you can actually use to make this manageable is looking at your timeline of your daily lesson plan. So I am a big proponent of having a highly structured plan as to what happens in both my literacy and my math classroom. That doesn't mean that we are very regimented all the time necessarily in the tasks we're doing, but I like to have a plan. So Mondays, we do this type of activity. Tuesdays, we do this type of activity. We have time pathways, so they're very predictable. You come into my math classroom, you do a warm-up. Then we do some instruction, then it's math centers and guided math, and then a wrap-up at the end. If every one of my math lessons follows that same overall structure, then it becomes much easier to decide and much more efficient to know what I'm marking and what I'm not marking. It also allows me to strategically plan the moments of what my students are doing and what I am doing. While they're doing their math warmups, I'm circulating around the classroom and I'm observing and having check-ins with my students. I may strategically pick a few students each and every day that I'm going to go and check in on and then make notes. And I'm not writing paragraphs. I could 
possibly just be using my stoplight system where I'm going, yep, they're green, they're orange, they're yellow, they're red to determine where they are. If I'm writing a green, they're good to go. Blue, I don't have to worry about them. And it lets me decide which students are either yellow, orange, or red and what I need to do about that because I really want all my students at green. I want them ready to go knowing what they're doing. If they're struggling or have questions, those are the students that I want to be checking in with as they are going through their math. And by observing them and walking around during that daily math warm-up, I can quickly watch what it is they're doing and make sure that they are on the right track because their warm-up is strategically planned to match the lesson from the previous day. So we want to do that through our lessons. We want to look at when we have a structure and we have a plan, we know when we can be observing, when we shouldn't be observing because we're doing something else and what it is we're looking for. And I find that a lot easier because I know what's expected of me in those moments because I've planned and structured that this is my time to do this. And because that structure is in place, I know what I expect of myself and what I'm supposed to be doing. And I often will find that that's not a time for me to be like, oh yeah, there's that one thing I need to prep for art lesson next period. So I'm going to do that now instead of walking around and observing my students. Now, there are opportunities where, you know, they come in from recess and there's a big drama and you don't get a chance to observe that day because you're dealing with some drama. That always happens because that's the life of a teacher. But it's important to, when I have that structure, it helps me to pre-plan when I will be observing, who I will be observing, and what I'm looking for during those opportunities, what questions I may want to ask, and how I can get my students to dig deeper. The third strategy I use a lot in writing. So I'm teaching grade six. My grade sixes are writing a lot more these days, and the length of their writing has grown dramatically. They're no longer writing simple one-page pieces of, or drafting one-piece writing. I don't even know what you would have called them in September some days, but they're definitely writing a lot more. If I make all of my students hand in their writing on the same day, it means that all of a sudden I go from no marking to piles of marking as I have to get through all of the student writing. So one of the strategies I like to put in place as the year continues is to stagger due dates. And this allows my students to choose their own due dates. So it means that they will decide when things are due and what their due dates are. But it also, for me, allows me to stagger my marking because if I only have two students handing in a piece of marking every day or every other day, it gives me an opportunity to mark just two student pieces of writing instead of 25 student pieces of writing, which is a lot more manageable if I have a routine so if I know every day I've got two pieces of student writing coming in, if every day I have a prep and I know it's going to take me 15 minutes to get through most of their writing, I know that 15 minutes of every prep that I get is going to be marking this. When I routine myself, when I give myself a routine and a structure, it means I'm more efficient because I'm trying to avoid wasting time or being inefficient with my time. Because a lot of this is efficiency and figuring out what's going to work best for you and how we can find that time. So staggering the due dates, especially for things like writing, has definitely helped. The other thing sometimes I like to do is if I am doing guided instruction, say in math or in language, when small groups are coming to see me, 
that's a great opportunity to check in and make sure that their work is completed or have them hand something in. So group one, they meet me on Tuesdays. So that means that group one owes me their reading response on Tuesday. It means I'm not necessarily getting my entire class's reading response on a Friday. It means some groups hand me their reading response on Tuesday. Some groups hand me their reading response on Thursday. And they get assigned their new one on Thursday and they hand it in the following Thursday. And their work is due on the day that they have guided conferencing with me or their writing is due on the day they have conferencing with me. When I stagger my due dates, it allows me to spread out how much marking I do. It also makes my marking consistent. So I have marking consistently every day, which means, again, I can put that into a routine and allow me to just feel a little bit more organized and not the overwhelming ebbs and flows of mark load. The fourth strategy I do is I give myself grace. And this means that if I've got a test that I'm marking, I give myself longer to mark it. I do not feel that students require their work 24 hours after they submit it. I do take my time marking and I have hard and fast rules about how much marking I'm going to be doing and what needs to be marked. If I find that I am drowning in my marking, the answer to that is not always just take it home. If I have way too much marking that needs to be done, perhaps not everything in that pile needs to be marked. If I go through that pile and say, what is going to give me the most information on student success? What is it? What activity do I need to mark? If I have four reading responses per student for the month of March, and I have to mark all of them, and I haven't marked any of them, do I need to mark all of them? Or do I just strategically need to pick the last two and mark those? Check the first two, mark the last two. Maybe I just mark one of them. Do I actually need to mark all four of them? Maybe I only mark all four of them for the students that are struggling or there might be an opportunity for more improvement. But a student that's consistently giving me level threes and fours, do I need to spend a ton of time marking every single one of them to get them a three and a four? Or do I just mark the last one? Versus a student who's giving me ones and twos and they're kind of on a progress plan and you're trying to help them progress you might need to have more timely feedback for them. You might need to give it back to them more frequently. You might need to prioritize marking that student's work over your student that's getting level three and four because clearly they're doing okay. They don't need as much feedback to just remind them, hey, you're doing a great job. You get an A. A student who's getting an A might not need to be told every week they're getting an A versus a student who's working at a C minus and then a C and then a C plus, and then they're slowly making that progress, they may actually need you to do more barking for them because they need that feedback a bit more timely. So you can triage the amount of work you're marking and not everything needs to be marked the exact same for every student. This is especially important too, is giving yourself grace when you're marking when you have a really large class. I've had classes that have 16 kids and I've had classes with 36 kids. And by far, classes with 36 kids in them or anywhere over 25 is a lot more marking. So you need to be even more strategic with classes that large of what it is you're marking and how much time realistically it's going to take for you to get it back. You cannot mark at the same rate a class of 18 as you can a class of 36. So it is unrealistic to expect yourself to be the same kind of marker, the same kind of teacher assessor as if you have class of 36 versus a class of 18. 
So if last year you had 18 students, you're like, I could get a test back in two days. And now you have a class of 36 and you're like, it takes me two weeks to get this test back. Give yourself permission for it to take you longer. The teacher down the hall with 18 kids is definitely going to have a lot easier of a time getting their marking done than you are with 36. So be realistic with your expectations about how long it takes. And it doesn't matter when students or parents want those marks back. It is your time and you decide what you are going to do to spend your unpaid time on. And if you've decided that spending your unpaid time marking things just so that you can get it back three days sooner isn't worth it, then it's not worth it. Take the extra three days and mark it during your prep if you need it. Take as much time as you need to get that back because you're not given the time during your paid time to mark that. And if it becomes a big problem, then maybe you need to have some activities where students are engaged in an art activity or a drama activity that frees you up to be able to mark while students are engaged in an alternate activity that isn't your prep. I talked a little bit before about routining the experience. One of the strategies that I use is looking at my preps through the week and deciding which prep I want to have is dedicated to marking. Which one in the week is going to be my marking prep? Sometimes I have multiple marking preps depending on what's happening in my classroom, but I try to structure what it is I need. I also look at what conditions I need. If my kids are in my classroom for that prep, then I need to find another location to work because I am not going to prep and I'm not going to mark when my students are in my room. I can't focus. If I have no other opportunity or other space, I find noise-canceling headphones and I put them on and listen to music while I mark so I can't hear what's happening around me. I position myself in the classroom so that I can avoid visual distractions that I find very easily distracting of things that are happening in the room like, oh, there's a poster falling down or I need to redo that bulletin board. I just turn around and face the corner so that I don't have to look at it because I will be distracted and I will change my mind and I will go and look at them. So I try to do something else and I try to position myself for success. I try to make sure my space is big enough that I avoid as many distractions as possible. I will set a timer and figure out how much I want to have marked by the end of that time. And I just power through. And I set a goal and I try to get it done and get it done as much as possible. And if it doesn't get done, I give myself permission to wait until tomorrow. Then I am not going to stay after school and finish marking if I don't have to. The sixth and I think one of the most important things is being efficient with how you mark. One of my best strategies that I tell every new teacher that I work with is number your students. Don't number your students by just calling them a number instead of their name, but number your students. Number their notebooks, number their worksheets. Number everything they're going to hand in to you and collect. Each student should be numbered according to your class list. I like a three-digit number, the first digit being their grade, especially if you're a split-grade teacher, that helps. And the second two digits being their position on your class list. So if you have a split-grade, you'll number all of your fours, 401, 402, 403, 412, 413. Then when you get to your fives, you're going to go 501, 502, 512, 513, 514, and so on and so forth. When you collect student work, get a student to put the work in the order of the student number. This means that we are going through, you're just going to save seconds and seconds add up to minutes and minutes add up to you can mark an extra paper. When your student work is in the order that it's on your class list, it is much easier to find those students and keep marking. It is much more efficient. And again, does it save you a lot of time? 
in the moment, no, it probably saves you a couple seconds, but those couple of seconds add up. And it means that you can add that over time and compound that. And it does add up and give you a little bit more time and make you more efficient. Another strategy I like to do, especially if I'm looking at a math test or any test in general, is to mark by question. That means if there are five questions on an exit card or five questions on a test or five questions on a piece of paper, I will mark all question ones at the same time. I will line them all up so that all of my books are open to the same page and I will mark just one question at a time. And I will go through it. I will pay attention to the student names or who they are. I will just go through and mark just that question. By about the fourth time I've read an answer to question one, I know exactly what I'm looking for. I'm not constantly checking back to the rubric or the checklist I made of look for as of things I'm looking for to mark that question. I've now memorized that list and I can much easier look at that question and be like, yes, they have it. No, they don't. This is level four. This is level three. Because I'm, I'm reading the same answer over and over and over again, 18, 24, 36 times. So if I mark all of the question ones, then I go back, mark all of the question twos. And I just have it in front of me and I go, mark question one, move over. Mark question two, move it over. Mark question three, move it over. And then I move, slide the pile back and go, okay, now we're doing question two. Two, 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 two. Slide them all over, go back and mark question three. Once the whole page is marked, then I go through with each student's name with my class list and I start recording. Question one, they got this mark. Question two, they got this mark. Question three, they got this mark. And then once that's all done, I'll total it up. So I try to systematize and batch what it is that I am marking. Because if I'm batch marking, I'm a lot more efficient because I know what I'm looking for for that particular question. I'm not hung up on which student it is. And I'm just hyper-focused on the question and the look-fors. And I can go through and be a lot more efficient with my time when I'm marking things like that in that nature. So hopefully some of these strategies were helpful to you and you can reduce your mark load and be able to spend your unpaid free time doing the things that you love. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Teaching with Madly Learning podcast replay. Join me on www.madlylearning.com for more information on all things teaching in the junior grades. Don't forget, you can always catch this show on the Madly Learning YouTube channel. See you next week for another replay episode of Teaching with Madly Learning.